Amen. He is indeed alive. And it is a big deal that He's alive. And so that's what we're going to hone in on today. If you got a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there actually should be one at a row near you at the end. You can kind of ask your neighbor, kind of poke them on the shoulder, because uh, we will be kind of looking at the words of the Bible um, as we go through today. And I will begin everything with reading a few of them. So we are in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to hone in on verses 30 through 35. Um, that I will read at the beginning. But we're going to be focusing on the story of Jesus' last days. So, uh, this is an appropriate season to do that. And so we're in Matthew 26. I'm going to read and then pray. And then after that, we'll kind of get at it today uh, to see our God and to know Him better. So let me read. Um, Matthew 26, verses 30. Through 35. Word of God reads this way. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, actually this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Let's pray. God, we come to you in prayer not because it's some religious right or action. It's because we are desperate. And I come to you personally right now and invite everyone in the room to kind of join me in this communion with you, in this relationship with you. And I just ask for your help. I ask that you would meet with us in a special and clear and powerful and discernible way this morning. And I just want to pray for a few specific people in this room. I want to pray for those who are in need of comfort. That you would come alongside them. And that you would build them up and that you would strengthen them and that you would begin the healing work that can only come through you. Lord, I pray for those who have come in here with failure as what they say characterizes their lives. And I ask, O God, that they would see by the end of our time that you specialize in cleaning up the messes of failures and making them new. And Lord, I want that hope and I pray for that hope to reign through this room. And God, I pray for the lonely. It's hard to believe that we could be lonely in a sea of this many people, but it's possible and it's a reality. And so I pray, Lord, that You would come near and that You would hear their cries and that You would take care of them and show them You. And I ask above all, That your power and your glory and your goodness and your love would be seen. 
as we see that you did not only die for us, but you're alive. So meet us now in these moments, in these sacred, special, precious moments over your word. Meet with us, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The resurrection is a big deal. Um, If you're reading some news app or you're still, you know, reading the paper pages, um, and it said, headlines, person raised from the dead today, I would bet almost everyone in the room would read it. Like, really? What's going on here? Because it is a big deal for death to be overcome. It's a big deal for one who was not breathing at all to now have life. And it's a shockingly big deal in the Christian faith because there is no other religion that claims that its God came in human flesh and lived a perfect sinless life and died the very death He didn't deserve, but His followers did, and then stayed dead for three days, but on the third day rose from the dead to conquer sin, Satan, and death. Everything hangs on the fact of whether Jesus is alive or not. Tim Keller says it this way, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all He said. If He didn't rise from the dead, then don't worry about what He said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like His teaching, but whether or not He really rose from the dead. Because if Jesus is alive, it proves everything that He said. And every promise that He said He can deliver on for you, all of a sudden comes to be yours. Hope is ignited. Significance and purpose are given. Direction and aim of your time and your love. How you deal with guilt and shame. And how you just live in the everyday. If Jesus is alive, everything is for him. And so today we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it together. The story of Jesus' last days. And we're going to see that Jesus truly is alive. And that our lives must deal with that fact. And I pray, oh, I pray that it moves from mental exercise to a heart change and a life reoriented for Him. I need that. I know you do. So, we're going to dive into Matthew 26. Now, you might ask, now, how in the world did he come with Matthew 26? Well, in my opinion, it's one more evidence that Jesus is alive. So, Ben McInnes, who leads music for us here week in and week out so faithfully, um, I asked him, I said, Ben, if... I don't really have a text yet for this week. It's early in the week. And uh, he said, I said, if there's anything that hits you, uh, you just let me know. Um, if God has been speaking to your heart as you've been preparing, just let me know. He calls me up and he said, Sean, um, you asked me if there had been something that hit me while I was reading my Bible. And I wanted to share it with you. Now, let's make sure if you're not 
um, a part of you know Christian circles or even a churchgoer, that language of hit you might sound a little aggressive, like you know whack, you know that it's not what happened. And some might say, well, as God was speaking to you, well, um, that's not most of the time, um, very rarely, if ever, this audible thing. It's this sense of an impression and a comfort and an encouragement and a sense of strength and hope. A greater understanding of things that you didn't understand before. All of this is how God moves and speaks and then shared with me. And he said, He said, Yeah, Sean, I um the Lord really spoke to me this week and struck me with Matthew twenty six. And he shared it with me about how he saw that these people who said they would deny him or never deny him ended up denying him and how there was a, an ability to kind of relate with those people and yet Jesus still died for them. So I was like, okay, that's good. And I just put it in my pocket and went on kind of thing, figuratively speaking. And then my wife calls day and a half later and she actually texts me and she says, Sean, I had the most amazing time with my kids this morning. Okay, that's a pretty rare thing. So, you know, I stop what I'm doing and I'm like, okay, not fighting, but amazing. Okay, we got to probe into what was going on here. And so they, she said, my wife homeschools and when... They've been going through some history stuff. They've been going through William Wilberforce, a great man of God and a great man of justice who fought to abolish slavery in uh, England. And so uh, just really thankful that they're reading about his life. But she said, we put him on hold for a day in order to read about Jesus. And she says, it was unreal. All I did was read through the story of Jesus, and she said, it clicked, Sean. It clicked. She said, my boys got it. Twelve and ten-year-old that were listening. And she said, by the time we finished, and I described what was going on, and we talked about it, and they asked their questions, we were all three in tears at how great God was. So, I was like, where would you read? Matthew 26. Okay, Matthew 26 it is. So, we dive in here to Matthew 26. And for me, it's only one more evidence that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is not a cold, dead figure in history who had some good teachings but died a needless death on a cross. Jesus Christ isn't cold. He's relationally warm. And when you trust in Him, you are not invited into a religion that goes through some motions in order to hope that God might see your actions and be so impressed with you that you might be accepted. No, you're invited into a relationship where God sees how messed up and broken you are and He says, no, you can't work yourself to me. I'll come to you. And He bends down and He draws near and He says, this is a relationship that I want to have with you. And that's what I experienced from two people. That's what I experienced this week as I was reading the Bible. These are alive words. This isn't just a New York Times bestseller kind of book. This is coming off the page, alive words that God uses to transform the human heart. He relates to us. 
Because He's alive. He's not dead. He's not dead. He's alive and at work. And He loves His people. And so today, when we dive into this story of Jesus' last days, we're going to ask two questions. Two questions. Question number one is this. In this story of Jesus' last days, who do you most identify with in the story of Jesus' last days? Who do you most identify with? Which character or group of people do you most identify with in the story of Jesus' last days? And then, the second question then, how in the world does the death and life of Jesus address that person or that group of people that you most identify with? So who do you most identify with and how does the death and life of Jesus address that person you find most or group of people you find most identity with? So let's dive into it. Story, true story. The story of Jesus Christ. All historians say He uh, lived and that He was a great teacher. And we have written evidence even in the Scriptures that Jesus is alive. And witness after witness that saw Him. So let's dive into it in Matthew 26. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2 together here to start off the story. It says this, Matthew 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these things, He said to His disciples... Disciples are the ones who had followed Him closely for these years. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. Now, the Passover was this Jewish celebration of when the Jewish people were liberated by God from slavery when they were underneath the oppressive slavery of Egypt. And so, they celebrated this annually. They kept coming back together to celebrate the fact that Jesus set them free physically as a people from the Egyptian slavery. And so, He says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man... Son of Man is a phrase that was used all throughout the Old Testament to to describe the One who was to come who would fulfill all these promises in the Scriptures. Over 60 some odd promises that a Messiah, that is a Savior, would come. Now just to throw a little fact out there to you. Anybody pay attention to March Madness? Okay, in March Madness, Warren Buffett and his crew decided to pay $1 billion dollars to anyone who had a perfect bracket. Now, some of you might not be into bracketology, but I really enjoyed it. And so, will you have a perfect bracket? Do you know that after round one, there wasn't any left? You know why? Because the likelihood of you picking all 64 teams and their destiny is 9 followed by 22 zeros. Warren Buffett didn't take a risk. It's not going to happen. You know what? Let's see, 64. Do you know how many prophecies were made about Jesus? That He would be, that the the Messiah would come, that He fulfilled perfectly? Over 60. Over 60. We're not just talking about some dumb blind faith that you kind of run into. We're talking about a man who not only knew the future, but a man who actually is God Himself. And He fulfilled all these prophecies. 
He is this son of man. And he told his followers that that's who he was. And so here at the beginning of the story, the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is not just one example, but multiple examples in the Bible that tell us that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. He knows the future. Even the verse that I read to us at the beginning, if you look at verse 32 of chapter 26, it says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Raised up. It means he's saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised up. He's predicting these things. And so the story goes that even though Jesus knew what kind of torturous death that he was about to run headfirst into, he did not run away from it, but moved into it. Why would he do that? I guarantee you, you would think twice if you were told you were going to die a sinner's death on a Roman cross. He knew it. And he ran into it. Why? The Bible tells us why. No greater love has anyone than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. And God in his amazing love sent his sinless son to die a death that you and I deserved. Let's make sure you get the gravity. You deserve it. Justice deserves punishment for sin. That's me. That's you. Just dive into the emotional capacity you might have if someone near you, someone close to you is killed. And there are 12 witnesses that see the whole thing, including you, and you stand in the courtroom and they're there, guilty. Guilty, guilty. How would you feel if the judge looked at them and said, I'm sorry, you can just go away. That's fine. You don't have to pay for those guilt, that guilt that you just committed. You would be in an uproar. Your heart would be in rage because justice demands punishment. And therefore, our sin against a holy God demands punishment. Eternal separation from God forever and ever. And yet Jesus was sent by that very God who should punish us. And He came and He stood in our place and He said, yes, you may be pushed away and out of the courtroom and I will stand on trial in your behalf. And He was crushed and punished and took it all on Him because of love. The Bible says, God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Why would He do it? Because He loves you. He loves you. And make it clear, He loves you even though you don't deserve it at all. And He loves you. And so... He embraced the path towards His own death. He didn't move away from it, but towards it. And now in the hours leading up to His death, He goes to a garden and He kneels down and He prays with His followers. 
He prays with his followers. And it is in this moment of his 33 years of life, the most intense moment of his life. So what would you want if your 12 closest friends were with you? What would you want them to do? Well, he tells them, please join me in prayer. Temptation is coming. Lift me up. And they go off. A few minutes later, they're sawing logs. They're out. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. He's got to wake them up. In a time most intense to him. Talking about feeling abandoned. Really? I'm not important enough for you to stay awake for. But he didn't do that. He pleaded that they would pray so that they would not fall into temptation. Love was always driving him. And then in his most intense moment, and he's praying to the Father, if there's any way for this cup of suffering to be removed from me, God, do it now, please. And of course, there was no way. Because there was no perfect one to die for imperfect people except him. And so he took the cup. He took and embraced that journey, that path. And he woke him up and he says, the time has come because suddenly out in the distance you hear a clanging, a clanging of armor and flaming torches coming near. And Jesus now is arrested. And he is arrested because the religious leaders of the day have accused him, have accused him of being blasphemous, not being who he said he would be, and that he deserved to be killed. And so they said that Jesus was stirring up a rebellion against the government. And so these people came out like a military coup. They were coming out with swords and armor. And Jesus didn't have any armor at all. And even His followers who did have swords, He told them to put it away. Because He knew He had to embrace death in order that you and I might be forgiven. But you might ask, well, how in the world did they find Him? How did they find Him? Out in this garden. Because in this storyline, there's this plot underneath of betrayal. One of his 12 closest followers ran him under the bus. All for a month's salary. Gave a man's life for a month's salary. His name was Judas. And after Judas kissed him on the cheek, the soldiers knew who to grab. And they nabbed him. And they took him. And guess what happened? Remember that, what we read earlier? I'll read it again. Even if I must die with you, verse 35, Peter says, I will not deny you. Peter also said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You want to talk about a lonely moment? It's when your 12 closest friends run out on you, scared out of their mind, and don't stay near to you at your hardest moment. And they all left, including, including Peter. So Jesus alone, this group takes Him, And now he faces this trial alone. And it's a quick one. It's a quick trial. Because before sunup, he has been tried and convicted. And then by the afternoon, 
He has been beaten and mocked and a crown put on His head and a robe put on Him because He claimed to be the King of the Jews. And so they just spit on Him and said these things. And so make sure the blood would dry while the robe was on and rip it off and then He would be put up on a Roman cross. Roman cross with nails in His wrists here that would sag and in His feet and He would be dying of asphyxiation because He couldn't breathe. He couldn't hold Himself up. And He died. He died a sinner's death and yet was completely sinless. And right before He died, He died on this cross between two thieves. One thief mocked Him. And the other thief basically told him to shut up. He said, we deserve to be here. But that man, he doesn't deserve what he got. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus looks at him and he says, today, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in heaven with my Father. You'll be with me. Because of that humility, that declaration of need, that declaration that Jesus is who He said He was, the Savior of anyone who would call out to Him. And then by the evening, He was taken and He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And He sat there, laid there in the tomb, dead, And then, then comes Sunday. Then comes Sunday. Matthew 28 describes this Sunday morning moment for us. Sunday morning, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, that is the Jewish Sabbath, which is a Saturday, after the Jewish Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Verse 2 of of chapter 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake. You want to know? As these two women were running down the hill to take, they were going to anoint Jesus with spices. But they had no idea how they were going to move this massive stone that was in front of this tomb. A stone that had to be moved by strong men, multiple men, and they sealed it such that there would be no way somebody could break in. These women had no idea how they were going to get in, but they wanted to just honor their dead Savior with anointing Him with oil and spices. And so when they get there, you want to know how it's moved? God moves it is how it's moved. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of our God, the angel of the Lord, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now there's victory. Sit on the spoils. Move that stone that's unmovable by man. And I'm going to sit on it. And who is this guy? His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, so shocked, they were like dead men. But an angel said to the women, don't be afraid. Really? Don't be afraid. Like lightning (laughs) and clothes white as snow? 
That's a big task. Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. And hear the phrase, for He is risen. Say it with me. For He is risen. No more beautiful words have been spoken. Because every promise was hinging upon that moment. If He stayed dead, promises are not delivered. You have nothing to bank your life on. And you might as well go live it up, friends. But at this moment, every word of His proves true. And He is alive. And now, He is risen. And the angel said, come and see the place where He lay. And they went in. And they, they saw it was empty. He was not there. And then verse 7, Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see Him, just like He said He would. So they departed, verse 8, quickly from the tomb with both fear and great joy. That's what happens when you hang out with God. Okay. I am so unworthy and He is so great, but man, I've never been happier in all my life. And they run with that beautiful mixture of emotion and they ran to tell the other followers that were walking this journey with them. And behold, while they were on their way, they see Him. They see Him. What do you do when you see someone who is more than a man, but is God Himself. What do you do when you see Him, when you're running on a path to tell others about His life? What do you do? Well, here's what you do. And they fell down on their feet, and they grabbed His feet, and they worshipped Him. They worshipped Him. There are passages in the Bible where other people tried to fall down before His followers and worship them, and they say, no, 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 stop it. I'm just a man. You want to worship my King. Jesus doesn't do that. Because He is who He says He is. He is God Himself. Worthy to be fall down on the face, grabbing the ankles and saying, You are greater than anything else I could ever imagine. You are my King and my Lord. And you are alive. And so Jesus says to them, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, they're going to see me. They're going to see me. How's the story go? Well, they saw him all right. And they were like, oh my. They were in a prayer meeting. Jesus shows up. And they see him. But Thomas wasn't there. One of the followers that went with him. Thomas was a massive skeptic. Uh, You know, all of them were just really leery that what Jesus said about Himself rising from the dead would really even come true. And it was just like, it was all so fresh and all so raw. They were just shocked. So Thomas said, I won't believe it until I touch Him. So Jesus shows up. And rather than getting angry at Thomas for his doubt, He invites him in. And He says, come over here. You touch me. You touch the holes. You touch the spear the hole where the spear went into my side, you touch him. That's how he deals with the skeptics. He draws near to them. He doesn't push him off. He's not afraid of the questions. Because there are answers for those questions. Our faith is faith, but it's a reasonable faith. Jesus knew it. 
and that skeptic. Thomas came and Jesus was alive. And after that, witness upon witness, over 500 witnesses saw Jesus alive. And then Paul, one of the great heroes of the faith, he wrote, while those witnesses were alive, that everything hinges on Jesus being alive. You don't write something like that until they're dead if you're writing a lie. But if you're writing truth... You write it while the witnesses are still alive so they can verify what's been written. And then, why in the world would he write about it highlighting two women as the heroes to see Jesus first? In that day when culture really pushed women down, you would never write women into the story if this was make-believe. Unless it were true. Women were the first one to see Him. And then you have this inexplicable, confusing, and shocking thing that those who for generations have been celebrating a Sabbath on a Saturday and have been longing for a Messiah and living in religious ritual overnight change their Sabbath day to a Sunday to worship Jesus Christ as the fulfillment, and many of them died for their faith. Why? Because they saw Him. He's alive. He is not dead. That's how the story goes. That's reality, friends. Jesus did not stay dead. He is alive. And if He is alive, then everything He said lays right on us. And our lives were meant for Him. We were created for His glory. We were to process all of life. From our money to our relationships to our jobs, our friendships, everything through the lenses of Him. Everything changes. Because He's alive. Now I want to ask you... Who do you most identify with in that story of Jesus' last days? Who do you most identify with? Maybe it's the religious leaders. The religious leaders who hated Jesus. You might be, I don't hate Him. I don't have anything against Him. I've never really even encountered Him much. But, let me ask you this. What happens when something contrary to your thinking comes into your life? Do you get angry? Or do you search it out? I'll tell you what they did. When something encountered their religious worldview, they got angry. They stood on their works and their deeds and their actions and they made a plot to kill the one that stood in the way. I promise you this. You won't find anything in the Scriptures that tells any follower of Jesus to go out and to kill. On the contrary, the mantra is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do you handle it when something counters your thinking? Do you search it out? Or do you push it off in anger? I encourage you, friends. I encourage you. Do not push off Jesus. 
And do not push off this message that has come to you, a message of forgiveness for sinners. Because there will come a day, there will come a day, it's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. And no one knows when it's coming but our God, and He will bring it. And on that day, we will stand before our King Jesus, and what will we have to bring Him? You will not have your actions to bring Him. You will not have a list that you can show Him that will merit enough that you can be accepted into His heaven. Nothing. What? Oh, I was kind here. I didn't cheat like my neighbor did. I was a better co-worker than this person. Really? What about the lying? What about the loving something more than God Himself? What about the time that you sought revenge or were bitter? What about even the adultery or the addiction? What about even a life of total disregard for God in the everyday? Friends, our life is a constant decrease away from the beauty of God unless someone intervenes. The only thing we have to give on that day is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus is all we have at that moment to say, I couldn't fix myself, but I trusted that you died in my place and that you rose from the dead. You're stronger than my sin and that you save sinners. That's all I got to bring. And Jesus will say on that moment for those people, Come on in. Come on in. I love you. I died for you. But anyone who sits on their religious actions, anyone who wants to just push Jesus off and relegate Him to the peripheral, anyone who does not follow Jesus with their lives will face an eternity of separation from Him because God is just and He must punish That's what's going to happen. So please, don't push Him off. Just seek Him out. He's there. He's not far. Is that you? Maybe if that's not you, what about the soldiers who mocked Him on the cross? They were carrying out their job, but they mocked Him. They made fun of Him and ridiculed Him and criticized Him. Some of you, you might be able to place yourself in the place of Jesus in that moment. Because you've been criticized. You've been ridiculed. You've been treated poorly by somebody's mouth. And I want you to know, Jesus died for that. He not only understands that journey, but when He rose from the dead, He says, I accept you. That's all that you need. You will never be more criticized than you are at the cross. But you'll never be more loved than you are at the cross. But what about those soldiers? They were critical. They were mocking. They were yelling. They were making fun of Him. I'll tell you what happened to one. Chapter 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what had happened, they were filled with awe and said, this is truly the Son of God. The temple curtain, which was massively thick, was ripped from top to bottom. It was ripped in two. Dead saints were rising from the dead. The ground shook. 
And they realized what they had done. Oh, may God use this moment as a moment of awakening to those of you who are just saying, this is just a religious sham. This is just what people are using to come and really do business with God. And don't write him off until that last judgment day. But join these centurions who when they saw what they saw, they said, truly this is. He's who he said he was. Is that you? But what about the thief on the cross? The guy who sat here, not the one who mocked, he would have joined the Roman soldiers, but the guy who said, would you remember me? What have you brought in today, guys? What have you brought into this room? Are you carrying a bag so heavy? Nobody can see it, but it weighs you down every day. A sense of failure... A sense of, I have done too much bad to be dealt with in a kind way. So there's no way I can ever come to God because my life is horrific. It could be, I'm an addict. It could be, I've committed adultery. It could be, I have run right over people in my work just so that I could get ahead. I've watched other people just really go to their demise so that I could succeed. Or I was so bitter, I caused somebody else pain. But now, you're here in this moment and you're thinking, there's no way. There is no way that that mess of my history could be forgiven. No way. And the thief on the cross cross stares at you. And he says, I'm with them in paradise. Because Jesus stared at him and said, I forgive you. I forgive you because you trusted in me. And you realized what you had done was wrong. And even in those last dying moments, you said, I want my life to align with yours. You are my Savior. He was saved. And so can you. So can you. You're not too far gone for grace. And God is stronger than your sin. That's why we had these testimonies up here. God breaks in to hurting people's lives because He's alive. He's not dead. He's surely, definitely alive. And He's changing people on the spot. What about those apostles that ran away from Him? Now we're not talking about those who, kind of the jury's still out on whether they were followers or not. We're talking about those who walked with them for three years. Those who said, I am in your camp, I am with you. What about you? What about you who have said, when you were given the opportunity to be bold for Jesus, you were afraid. You didn't speak. Or what about you when suffering came into your life and the pain was so acute, you didn't run towards Jesus, you kind of pushed Him off. If that's how it's going to be, then I'm gone, I'm out. You might have even been the one like Peter who said, I'll never deny Him. I will never call Him into question. But then the suffering came. 
the pain got acute. And you didn't know how to process it anymore. And in your heart, you kind of pushed him aside. What does God do for those kind of people? Well, let's take the one who said, I'll never deny you. His name is Peter. Jesus said, you would deny me three times. And Peter sure enough did. And at the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, he comes up to Peter. It's like this intimate one-on-one moment. And he says, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, you know I love you. Then he says, then feed my sheep. Then Jesus asked him again, and he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He says, well, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him a third time, and you can almost sense, it says in the text, he was so grieved, Peter's head falling. How many times did he deny him? Three. How many times was he asked? Three. And you can just feel the shame coming over Peter. And then you can feel Jesus almost just lifting his head up and saying, well, if you love me, then I'll use you. Go ahead. You feed my sheep. Jesus does not write off the failure. He uses the failure to do outstanding, extraordinary things with simple people like me and you. That's what He does with your guilt and shame. He covered it on the cross and He says, You failure, you guilty one, lift up your head. I died, I rose from the dead, and I specialize in using those who failed for my namesake. I want to use you. Is that you? Don't walk around in guilt and shame. Don't walk around with that head wanging low. You look to the cross. In your suffering, when you've struggled to believe Him at all, He's not afraid of your questions. And He invites you nearer, not further away, for you to kind of fix yourself up and then you come. He says, draw near. Draw near, sufferer. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. That's what He says to you. So then we end with Thomas, the skeptic. Thomas says, I won't believe it until I see it. Can I tell you about another skeptic? His name was Paul. Paul, most revolutionary person in the Bible when it comes to advancing the Gospel, he too is a skeptic like you. He killed Christians because he was so skeptical. How in the world can a man come and all the, and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament go away? How in the world can this man really be God? And he's, he looks like he's just a human to me. So I'm going to kill those who follow this religion rather than follow it himself until, until he saw the risen Christ. And I tell you this, friends... All of his questions weren't answered. But when he saw that Jesus is alive, he knew that they could be. Because death had just been overcome. And everything changed for Paul. One of the greatest preachers of all time was Paul. 
Yes, there are answers for your questions. But if Jesus is alive, everything changes. Everything changes. And now that's what we lay out today. What does the story of Jesus' last days mean for you? Who do you most identify with? And do you see that Jesus' death was for you? And His resurrection calls us all to give our all to Him and to trust Him with each and every day. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You at this moment don't treat us as our sins deserve, but You are alive. Lord, I pray that You would remove from us disordered loves, where we take money and make it most prominent, even more than people. Or where we take our jobs and we raise them up more than You. It's the disordered lives that leads to all the brokenness in our world, and You have said everything is ordered rightly when You are first. And so, God, I call out to You now to move in a powerful way in in our midst to make Yourself first in our hearts. Some of us, some of us are skeptical. And I just ask, oh God, that we would not leave here in anger, but humbly searching out the Scriptures. Humbly searching out this Jesus. Others are just feeling really beaten down. God, I I don't want people to be driven by guilt, but by love. And Your love died for the guilty that they might be set free and live a life of love and purpose. And so, oh God, I ask, I ask You to move in our midst. So be with us now. Come draw near in Jesus' name. Now before I say amen, I would love for this time to be a time of prayer for You. Who do you most identify with? What what is God doing in your heart? Maybe you need to confess certain sin and you need to believe that He forgives you and that He's more powerful than the sin you have committed and given yourself to. Maybe you just need to declare in your heart that Jesus is better than what you've been lured off to do. Some of you are not believers in this room. And maybe right now what this moment needs to look like is you just ask God to change you. You just ask Him to give you desire. Ask Him to give you a heart that trusts Him. Whatever it is in this moment, let's just take some time in prayer. I'm going to be down front. If I can pray with you or care for you, I'll be here. But let's spend some time in prayer.
I'll be up front to pray as will others be up here if you would like to pray with them. But let's take this time to declare through song our prayers and our love for God.